The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, culture, and law. I'm Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we will be discussing the bail system in the United States of America. Today, I'm also joined by Malik. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, thank you for asking, Abraham. And Harish, how's it going? It's going good, Abe. Thanks for asking. So in this episode, we're going to attempt to tackle some difficult questions about the, the bail system and the status quo. We're going to consider historically how did the bail system arise and how it affects things today. What types of bail systems are there across the globe? Are cash bail funds generally a good idea? And what sort of reforms can we realistically seek um, for the bail system today? So with that, perhaps the best place to start would be with a historical sort of snapshot. How did we get to the place we are today? So Malik, if you could just start us off. Historically, how did the bail system arise in the United States? For sure. So I feel it's uh, productive to first define what bail is. So uh, bail is a process implemented to ensure uh, that accused individuals who are released pending trial, uh, they do not become fugitives. So in essence, you can see the bail as uh, the conditional release of an accused person. Specifically, cash bail involves the payment of money as a collateral for release. And the cash bail system uh, can be traced back to the Anglo-Saxons. They required that uh, accused individuals find someone that would be willing to act as their surety and pay uh, the alleged victim a sum of money should the accused flee. However, and interestingly enough, no money had to actually exchange hands unless the accused fled. That contrasts to the present system of bail uh, in the United States and in many other countries in which there is a requirement that cash be paid prior to the release of an accused individual. And uh, that is due to a reform in the system that can be traced back to the late 19th century and has to do with uh, the Industrial Revolution and uh, the fact that many people were moving into cities and had no uh, relatives there to pay or to act as surety. So instead, uh, payment of cash was required prior to the release of individuals. I think that's a very good, a good place for us to start. So how does the U.S. system of bail currently today compare to other countries? Is it generally pretty much the same all over the world emanating from these historical roots, which Malik just talked about? Harish, do you have any insight on this? Yeah, so I think... Um the Anglo-American influence across the globe is part of the reason why bail systems are widely adopted. So as Malik's outlined, um, in most countries today, um, including the US, there is some form of monetary bail system that exists across the board. Um, What I think is unique about the US that I don't think you find elsewhere is that bail systems are not commodified and corporatized in the same way that they are in the US. Um, So I guess that's that is something that hasn't propagated the same way that the general bail system has. So that's just something to keep in mind when framing our discussion. Um, But yes, I I think um, in general, bail systems are fairly wide and commonly used. When you say that uh, the bail system in the U.S. is more corporatized than maybe comparable countries, what do you mean by that, Harish? Um, I guess the, the, the... Distinguishing factor is the fact that um, where individuals cannot afford to pay a bail, bail bond companies can step in and 
be responsible for their bail obligations. Um, alongside that, what happens is um, people also pay an upfront 10 to 15% fee, which forms a non-refundable premium. Um, and the remainder is often taken up by a collateral that the bail bond companies take up. So that system doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Instead, what they'll do is, uh, I mean, um, in most common law systems, I think it's um, often you find a small sum um, that um, that forms the monetary bail aspect of it. And often they'd use other property as collateral directly instead of using a bail bond, bail bond company to do that on the behalf of uh, the justice system. Very interesting. And I guess if we sort of zoom out and look at the system as a, a whole in the United States, what do you generally think about the system, Malik? Is it doing what it was implemented to do? Is it accomplishing its goals? Is it sort of the best thing we can do with what we have today? Well, specifically, when we talk about the American bail system, I see several flaws. And I feel that my stance with that is in regards with the cash bill in itself. Uh, so, for example, there are many people that cannot afford to pay uh, their bail. And uh, these people remain in prison until trial, uh, which is something that can take several years uh, without the person actually having been found guilty of any offense, which I found a, a bit ironic, right? Because uh, the criminal justice system uh, presumes innocence. However, when you have a person uh, being uh, locked up because they cannot pay their bail, uh, well, then... Perhaps there's an argument to be made that there is no presumption of innocence, but a presumption of guilt, right? Uh, furthermore, the effects of uh, that person's time in prison can be terrible. Uh, perhaps the person locked up was uh, the main breadwinner of a family, and uh, the family depended on the income of that individual. So the family will be severely impacted by the person's imprisonment. Uh, not to mention the psychological effects of being in prison, uh, especially without knowing for how long. So uh, there was... A recent example uh, of a teenager, uh, Khalif Browder, uh, he was uh, imprisoned in 2010 and he was accused of stealing a backpack. His family couldn't afford the $3,000 uh, bail and so he spent the next three years in jail awaiting trial. He refused to plead uh, guilty and eventually uh, all, all charges were dropped against him. However, after years in jail, uh, a lot of it in solitary confinement, uh, Browder had trouble readjusting back to his normal life and he unfortunately uh, committed suicide in 2015. So I, I guess that shows uh, the, the, the negative effects of uh, the, the bail system. And of course, this is the example of an individual's experience. But I, I, do, I do feel that it is reflective of a wider problem in the system. Another problem I have with the U.S. bail system is the fact that uh, judges who assign cash bails uh, and their amounts, they're, they're not consistent. A recent analysis uh, of bail decisions in uh, New York City uh, from 538 shows that the chances of being assigned a cash bail varies very widely uh, between 30 to 69 percent uh, for felonies, depending on which judge happens to be seating uh, on uh, the, the court on a, on a given day, which I think is a wild uh, range of variation for something that should be more or less equal uh, for everybody. Uh, so those are some problems I have with the U.S. Uh, cash bail system. Uh, perhaps uh, the biggest one, which I think Harris alluded to, is the fact that the U.S. has a for-profit uh, bail system, right? And, and I find it baffling because, uh, in, in essence, you have these uh, corporations that take the role that I think should be a, of, of a state institution, right? So these uh, corporations are guaranteeing a person's presence on, on trial and, and taking some profit for that. 
My problem is not necessarily with the corporations themselves, but with the system that allows these corporations to exist in the first place. Because a person's liberty should not be decided on whether they can pay a certain sum, but whether they can show up to court after all, which is something I feel can be done in other ways. For example, by requiring a person to attend meetings with social workers or other such uh, similar measures. So I guess that was a bit long, but that's uh, my general overview of uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, bail system. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot to um, un unpack there. Um, and I guess I was wondering with Malik, what you brought up um, regarding the data set from 538. I'm not personally familiar with the data set, but if my understanding correct is generally it's sort of um, says that based on the data, there's, you know, significant variation in the bail amount set for similar crimes. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. So I'm just sort of wondering it because I'm thinking of this, um, as yeah, that sounds like a lot of variation, but I mean, realistically, it's, it's, it seems to me, it's very rare that even if the same crime is committed, the circumstances of the defendant are the same. So for example, let's say one person, you know, committed an assault on someone and they're just your, you know, average person, right? Probably not such an enormous risk if they're let back out in the public and pay some sort of bail because they're probably going to show up to court again. And let's say another person commits an assault, but this person, you know, to go to the extreme has like a private plane and offshore bank accounts and that sort of thing. So I would assume that it makes more sense for the judge to put a much higher bail on this, you know, second person because they, you know, represent a flight risk and they represent more of a risk of not showing up to trial. But I'm just guessing from your description that 538 would show this as some wild variation when maybe this variation is, is justified. Well, from my understanding, 538 looked at many cases uh, that go on every day. And something to note is the fact that it is very likely that many of the cases going through were, were very similar because you did mention two uh, very different cases. And while there is a real possibility that there is this person who committed an assault and he's your average person, and then this other uh, multimillionaire with uh, uh, an offshore bank account and a private jet, I feel that it's much more likely that there are many cases of this average person going to jail and uh, that there's a discrepancy between uh, what, for example, I would receive and then an another person would receive under the same circumstances. I think that is the point that is being made. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. Malik's covered quite a fair bit of ground and I think I more or less agree with Malik on most of most if not all of those grounds I think um, just one peculiarity that I thought was really interesting is the Louisiana bail system the Louisiana bail system seems to incentivize the very people I mean beyond just incentivizing um, bail bond companies also incentivizes judges uh, district attorneys and um and other people in the justice system to find in favor of um, of uh, requiring a bail amount. As an example, um, they require um, bondsmen to keep 9% of that money, 1.8% to go to the criminal district court, remaining funds of the amount um, go to the sheriff's office, the district attorney's office, and the public defender's office, all of which is the non-refundable portion of um, bail. What, what's surprising to me is that this is that this is baked into the system. So it seems like you, if you're a judge in a criminal district court that happens to be underfunded, your incentives are clearly to um, maximize your funding. Being, 
even if not for your own personal gains, but um, perhaps for the efficiency of administration of justice, it just seems um, counterintuitive, and I, I'm not sure it, it, it's it's even sensible in 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 this like this. So I just found Louisiana particularly interesting. I think Louisiana is an aberration across the U.S., but I still I still think broadly it's it's a manifestation of the same type of incentives. Um, to keep people either in jail or to find in favor of people going to jail. Yeah. Um, also, I, I'm sort of thinking maybe we should zoom out for a second because, like, in, in all reality, if we're being honest, the vast majority of people, you know, I assume that the data backs me up on this, at least for, you know, violent crime, are found guilty of these, you know, violent crimes or the crimes they're charged with in the first place. So... For you know your average person, why should we be so concerned with if it makes it, if the bail system makes it you know difficult or sort of unfair in certain circumstances where they have to pay more money than maybe they should have to to get out of prison? Maybe even recognizing the innocence before guilt, maybe we shouldn't be letting so many of these people back into our communities just by paying some sort of fee, because you know in many cases these are you know dangerous or violent people. What, what do you say to, you know, a, a concerned person who looks at bail reform and bail reform activists and sort of think, oh, this is going to lead to more violent offenders in the community because at least that's what the bail industry says. And that's what a lot of, you know, um, police advocates also say. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's a valid concern for sure. But um, I think what we must keep in mind is that um, most cases of bail are normally targeted at misdemeanor cases. So most misdemeanor misdemeanor offenses are fairly minor. Um, not all. Some are still jailable offenses, but most are relatively minor. And what is also to keep in uh, we ought to keep in mind is that just because someone's found guilty or pleads guilty doesn't necessarily mean they are guilty. There are lots of incentives for people who are found um, who are who have been charged of an offense to plead guilty in order to leave jail earlier than they otherwise would have be able to do if they were to um, stand for trial. So pre-trial detention simply induces people to plead guilty just for the sake of leaving jail. Um, what we also find is that public prosecutors normally offer sentences for their time served um, in jail as opposed so that they don't have to serve any more time after they plead guilty in prison or they, they would ask for probation in exchange for tendering a guilty plea. So this is something to keep in mind. And um, what we also see is that detained defendants are more likely to plead guilty, more likely to be sentenced, and more likely to receive jail sentences. So as much as um, it's fair to say that uh, there's a large proportion of people who are, who are who being charged are found guilty. We're not. I, I wouldn't be so quick to say that. Therefore, that proportion of people are people who are actually guilty, as opposed to um, having incentives to plead guilty for the sake of pleading guilty in order to get out quicker. Quicker. I'm just concerned because, although these cases are rare, um, I was reading when I was doing research for this, you know, episode. These, you know, anecdotal cases where sometimes somebody is released on either a bail bond or they have the money to pay bail and they committed a crime before, especially against like a victim which they knew. And then after they were released, they come back and, you know, harm the victim again. So I, I, and my concern is sort of that a lot of the 
bail reform, which I've researched and which seems to be proposed by advocates, I think it's hard to argue that um, these reforms wouldn't lead to more people, um, you know, let out of jail that could potentially be a risk to, you know, the civilian population. And that, at least for me, that makes it sort of difficult for me to support these bail reforms because, you know, uh, I'm someone who, you know, (laughs) isn't, you know, a criminal or anything like that. And I'm more worried about, you know, people also who aren't criminals and I'm worried about, you know, the health and safety of those people. So I, I guess given that, are there, you know, some sort of reforms which wouldn't really lead to more, you know, um, violent offenders or even just criminal offenders back on, on the street um, when perhaps it's for the best, you know, the safety of the population to keep them in jail? Well, the way I see it, the problem that we're actually looking at is not necessarily the bail system in itself, but uh, the speed in which uh, cases go to court and are tried. Because if you have a serious offender, that person uh, will await their trial and uh, will be found guilty or innocent. So instead of focusing so much on, on, on the bail aspect, that person has to be given uh, a trial as soon as possible so that their guilt or innocence can be asserted and uh, therefore punishment uh, either be given or not. People that are actually uh, able to be freed from prison on bail, these are people that committed relatively minor offenses, as Harris mentioned. So I don't think that there would be uh, a, a big risk of these people eventually uh, going out and committing uh, another crime, especially if we introduce other aspects. Uh, so, for example, uh, demanding that these people uh, talk to social workers uh, or present themselves to social workers on a weekly basis as uh, these social workers can perform two functions. The first one, ensuring that uh, these people are have not fleed away. And uh, the other one is uh, trying to, to talk to them and, uh, well, a- assessing their mental state and whether they're likely to uh, engage in criminal activity in the near future. Uh, I do recognize that in the vast majority of cases, uh, people who receive bail are um, receiving bail for, you know, very minor things, probably misdemeanors in most cases. But it's not true to say that violent offenders um, don't get bail. Sometimes they do get bail and sometimes they do go and commit crimes again. And that's what I'm most concerned with. Is it really, you know, in our best interest as a society to, even though in a, only maybe a few cases every year, to allow, you know, people out, if, um, I guess, in the name of innocence, you know, before guilt, because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little later, but even if we look at these, um, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, which was this initiative to bail out protesters and rioters um, who were arrested uh, in Minnesota after protesting the murder of George Floyd, um, it came out afterwards that this fund had been paying the bail of, you know, violent offenders who had nothing to do with protesting George Floyd. For example, they paid $100,000 to release a woman who was charged with second-degree murder for allegedly stabbing and killing her friend. They paid $75,000 in bail for a man who was charged with attempted murder who was accused of shooting at police during riots in May. They paid $350,000 to bail out a twice-convicted rapist who is currently charged in two current cases with kidnapping, sexual assault, and assault. So even if these you know, cases are very rare, I, I think it's you know, very fair to be concerned with these, you know, um, these concerning examples. 
I, I think uh, I don't think it's easy to defend those cases, right? But we, what we need to ask is who's making the decisions as to fund these individuals? I, I I'm not sure decision making is um is necessary, or at least the vetting process in order to make sure that whoever's asking for the money is appropriately given amounts that they deserve to, and whether or not there's a background check being done on these individuals isn't clear. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily means that we should defend um, the bail system as is, because if you're looking at the vast majority of people, like Malik said, if they're misdemeanors, I think we ought to reform the system. I'm not sure whether I'd be in favor of a no-cash bail system, because, um, I mean, because... There's clear evidence that shows that cash bills incentivize individuals to come for trial. But I think the holes in the system are the same, regardless of what the quantum of bail is, right? Which is that people who might pay bail might go out and do bad or violent things. But this is a problem that's both in the present system and in any solution we discuss. So I think the question we ought to ask ourselves is whether or not the decision-making process right now is sufficiently good at filtering people out um, who are least likely to commit serious offences um, and whether it's, I guess, um, overwhelmingly criminalising them to a greater extent that they ought to be or having negative consequences for those people. And I think that's the case in the vast majority of cases. And I think um, Malik also addressed this other idea, which is the idea of getting people to move through the criminal system as quickly as possible. That's a that's a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm cognizant that the U.S. court systems aren't particularly efficient. And that, that's not unique to the U.S., right? It's a problem most countries face. But certainly some way of improving the court system will make um, the issue of people coming out and then committing violent offenses um, less problematic. So that's also something that we ought to keep in mind when considering the bail system. So... Abe, I just wanted to go back to the point you mentioned about uh, these uh, people with questionable uh, histories uh, being uh, released uh, to the public at large. Wouldn't you say that the problem is that they were allowed to be out in the first place and not necessarily that without uh, a cash bail system, uh, they would be allowed to enter society? Because under my uh, ideal system of bail, these people would not be allowed to enter society not because they would have to pay a bail or something, but because they would not meet uh, the, the requirements to uh, be released because uh, they, they could be considered people that are very likely uh, to uh, either commit violent offenses or uh, to flee. Because when we talk about reforming the bail system, we're not saying that everybody's entitled to, to be free until they're proven guilty. Certain people should not be allowed to, to roam around uh, uh, freely. And that's because there is, uh, well, if, if not, a certainty, a quasi-certainty that uh, it is not a good idea to uh, allow these people to just ro- to roam around, right? So I think that perhaps the issue is not uh, reforming the bail system, but uh, that the decision-making process of the judges and that those specific cases was wrong. No, I, I, I actually agree with you, Malik. I'm not like a, really a strong proponent of the cash bail system in any way. Uh, and I agree with you that these people should not, you know, that I mentioned should not just be let back out in public. That being said, my understanding of, you know, reform suggested uh, in the U.S. is that generally uh, it seems to me that there would be at least a similar amount of subjectivity in terms of um, judges granting bail to all offenders, except perhaps the bail wouldn't be, you know, based on cash 
or it'd be a lot less cash. It would just be based on a scale of uh, perhaps dangerousness. There are, you know, as you know, there's a variety of various reforms. But with that, I have similar concerns that if a judge is perhaps, you know, too lenient and they don't think someone's so dangerous because maybe, you know, I don't know, they come in a nice suit or, um, you know, something like that, or they don't have a past criminal history necessarily, um, that that's going to allow, you know, violent offenders back on the street. So given that, I think, you know, my ideal reform would be some sort of, um, I guess, like chart or whatever, where certain crimes wouldn't be allowed bail, you know, in any circumstances. And like you, you know, propose Malik, the, these trials would given, would be given priority in, um, being addressed quickly by the court system. But even with that, I recognize, you know, that there are problems with that. If you're, you know, accused of murder, for example, this would be probably one of the crimes where you wouldn't want to give people, you know, bail. But if, you know, um, the accusation is based off of, you know, poor evidence, why should somebody be in, you know, jail for three years, which, you know, murder trials can often take that long, just because, you know, they have a terrible DA or police officers or something like that. So I, I really think the issue is, you know, super complex. And I, I haven't heard a, a reform which, you know, really makes me happy and, and makes me comfortable saying, yeah, this is the right way to go. This is how, you know, we're going to be fixing the system. Yeah, um, I think um, one of the issues that the bail system faces now and that any reform will ultimately, or at least any of the present reforms will ultimately involve, is some level of discretion being given to judges. Um, and judges deciding on the basis of, I guess, what they feel about a particular case. And I'm not sure those problems go away, even if we address the earlier issue of giving them more time and more information to process things. I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that um, judges are influenced by factors that you very you would not think would influence them. For example, judges, as they go along throughout their day, tend to find tend to find uh, tend to be more likely to find that someone is guilty. So if they hear a hearing early on in their working day, for example, nine a.m. when it starts, they're less likely to find that person guilty than if they hear it at ten thirty a.m. So. There are lots of biases that are inbuilt into human decision-making that inevitably um, flow into the criminal justice process. And that's why I think some level of algorithmic um, automation will be able to, I guess, correct or at least compensate. So one of the common arguments used against algorithms is that algorithms tend to use data sets from before and therefore they'll be intrinsically biased because people of color tend to be overrepresented in previous data sets. But I think we ought not to underestimate our computer scientists. I'm sure there will be, and, and there are lots of ways to mitigate um, criminal data um, biases. So I, I think um, investing in some automation processes that take human judgment out of the bail giving system is a good idea because your bail giving system is ultimately predicated on just a few factors that are available to you, right? Um, seriousness of crime, um, whether they have a criminal history from before, maybe income is a good idea to keep in mind. Um, these these few factors are what are always at play. And I, I'm not sure giving judges a discretion to override these algorithm decision-making is also a good idea. So just as an example, um, Kentucky uh, used to use a algorithm alongside their um, judges 
so that judges can be guided by the algorithm's recommendations. But what they found was that over time, judges started ignoring alg the algorithm's recommendations selectively, um, and judges just returned to their previous habit. So I think some level of, I mean, obviously my this idea seems a bit more radical than um, the other ideas that will probably be discussed. But I think this is a good way of building a system that doesn't take into account biases and um, other discrepancies that, that otherwise will fall through. I'm curious, Abraham, how does the bail system in Canada compare to that uh, of the US? Honestly, I'm, I'm not, I was trying to look this up because I anticipated this question uh, coming up, but our system is uh, a seemingly very complex, but it seems like we do have sort of um, certain types of crimes which are, um, I guess, pretty much automatically like given um, certain bails, and we don't have bail bondsmen really. So it's 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 I I would say it's a fusion between the American system and um, perhaps more European systems. Um, but that being said, I'm I'm not really sure um, as to the effectiveness of the system. I haven't really seen much data um, on that. But if we want to sort of segue to talking about, um, as I guess our listeners will surely know, and both of you know, um, the rise of bail funds for rioters and protesters in you know a ma major America cities, and what these are are. Um, funds which will donate um, to pay for the bail of people arrested, either protesting or rioting, um, related often to uh, Black Lives Matter um, protests in recent months. And this has been, you know, in the news very much, largely because many celebrities have donated large sums of money to these funds, and some funds have, you know, raised enormous amounts of money. I think the Minnesota fund, which sort of started this, this whole trend, I suppose, raised over $35 million um, for their bail fund. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting phenomenon, I suppose, because it can sometimes lead to, um, you know, violent people also being, uh, have their, you know, release funded by people expecting that they're funding, you know, protesters that shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. So what are your general you know, thoughts on this? Well, I, I did mention before that I have no problems against uh, bail corporations. So in theory, the same would have to apply in regards to these bail funds uh, because they are uh, meant to establish uh, the uh, freedom of uh, people that have committed a, a misdemeanor and are awaiting trial. So again, uh, there is the that element of innocence before being proven guilty. So I don't really see much difference between uh, a bail corporation and a bail uh, fund such as the Minnesota one. I, I feel that the problem is not the existence of these uh, corporations or institutions, but again, uh, the system itself, right? Because if the person has committed a sufficiently serious offense, well, then uh, they should await trial within a prison. And if they haven't committed a seriously uh, enough offense, well, then they, they, they shouldn't be having to, to have anything paid in order to have their freedom. Uh, at most, there should be certain conditions to ensure that that person uh, does uh, attend court. So I don't see the fund as necessarily problematic. And... I'd say that perhaps uh, that reasoning is the same that applies to bail corporations and to my view uh, that it's not the fault of these institutions, but of the uh, system itself. Harish, what are, what are your thoughts on the topic? Yeah, um, 
I think um, I share some of the concerns that you've raised, Abe, because obviously you won't be sure who's coming out and who's going to be doing scary things. Um, and those examples do point to an issue. I guess the, the, the fact that some people get out and commit violent crimes would be a problem, even if these um, institution, even if these bail funds didn't exist, right? Um, if there are alternatives like bail corporations that are able to do the same thing by guaranteeing an amount while taking a premium, the difference is now you're able to make some money off of um, people who are otherwise going to go to jail and stay in jail. So I'm not, I mean, as much as I as I share your concern, I think overall it's not really distinct from the function that other bail corporations play. Um, so the same problems that plague bail corporations also plague uh, bail funds. And I think Malik's acutely, astutely pointed out that um, it's because of the system that incentivizes people to be bailed out for any different thing at very varying amounts that makes makes the the whole thing a bit, I guess, unsatisfactory and I guess concerning. So I'd say the bail funds are a symptom of a much bigger problem rather than them being intrinsically problematic. Yeah, I I, I think that's fair. And what also hit the news recently, which was, you know, very surprising to many, was that um, I I believe it was the the Minnesota bail fund where. Um, after since they raised so much money, they simply didn't have enough people to um, bail out of uh, you know prison. That they donated this money, well, a lot of the money towards uh, I believe is the Democratic Party and um, Black Lives Matter as like an organization, or perhaps it was just to Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter movement donated a lot of it to the Democratic Party. I don't remember exactly. But for many people, this was a shock. So this isn't really what they, you know, donated towards. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I thought that was quite interesting. And I, I thought that sort of, you know, signals the importance of, you know, being very aware of, you know, what you're donating to in many cases. I mean, I, I think, like, this is a bit more than just being aware of what you're donating for, right? This is, I guess, a realignment of this, the things that the fund was standing for which um, I'm, I'm not sure is, a, is an ethical or even reasonable thing to do. But I guess the vast majority of people who support um, initiatives like the Minnesota Freedom Fund are also likely to support the Democratic Party. Even, I mean, I'm not saying this justifies the actions. I'm just saying this means that, I, I don't know, it, it just seems like an interesting phenomenon and seems like, it's in line with the incentives of what people who donate for the fund would likely want. Right. So I guess if we sort of want to sum up, um, generally on the issue of, you know, cash bail in the U.S. Um, and, and reforms, um, Malik, where do you stand? What's the right reform? And maybe if you could give us, you know, one reform which can easily be implemented without totally overhauling the symptom, the system, and maybe a more you know general, um, if you were you know dictator of the U.S., what would you implement to you know fix the problem? Well, uh, I was thinking about a simple solution that can uh, be implemented right off the bat, and I think that perhaps the most valuable one would be uh, better training for judges, so uh, that perhaps they can 
be more consistent in how they award uh, bails to whom and if they do, uh, if, they, if they see uh, that there's a risk uh, of the person, uh, well, either committing violence or escaping. So I, I think perhaps that would be uh, a relatively simple thing that can be implemented right off the bat. And as for uh, my uh, proposal for the elixir of the bail uh, system, uh, you could say, I guess I'd have to first uh, get rid of uh, uh, cash bail for uh, misdemeanor and other minor offenses. And uh, I'd have conditional bail, but uh, it would not be conditional on cash, but conditional on uh, appearances in front uh, of uh, social workers on perhaps uh, a weekly basis and other similar measures to ensure that uh, the person that has committed a minor offense is going to show up for their hearing and uh, is not thinking of committing other offenses. And uh, for more serious offenses, I, I, I don't think uh, there, there should be a bail. Uh, I would have these people await trial uh, in cells, but also try to expedite the process. So make it as fast as possible so that if these people are innocent, they do not uh, await uh, trial being negatively affected. Uh, if I had almighty power, I, I, I guess that's how I would structure the system. Uh, and Harish, how about you? Um, I guess the the one that's a bit more, I guess it's it's a bit easier to implement is to change the standards that are required to um to to require. I mean the the standards that are necessary in order to show that someone needs to be put on bail. So um I think some of the some of the safeguards you can put in as procedural safeguards by ensuring that the prosecution showcases, I guess, a very convincing standard of proof that this person um, is a risk to people in the community and therefore requires a fine in order to make sure that they come for trial. Um, I guess another thing to keep in mind is um, that a lot of um, defend uh, defendants who go be before a court um, when determining whether or not they get bail or otherwise don't have defense counsel with them. So forcing defense counsel to be appointed before the first hearing is a good idea. And because the U.S. is a public defender system, I think it, it's something that seems natural to implement. Um, but I think these are just piecemeal solutions that don't really address the issue, right? So I guess in a dictatorial situation, what I'd be thinking about is seeing whether we can do away with corporations that, that do bail. Like, I... I, I I can't think of a good reason why someone who can't afford to pay a bail will have to pay a premium to a company um, that will pay for them in exchange um, what they what the company gets is a 10% or 15% cut of that cut of their bail money. I can't I I don't know it, the the whole system just seems so um, disagreeable. It doesn't sit right. Um, I'm not I I don't think corporations should be allowed to profit off of the inability of some individuals to pay the full amount of their bail money. Um, you can introduce non-profits or governmental institutions that perform the same function but without taking a profit. Um, another way to address the issue is to take into account income of these individuals. So I think the quantums of bail are now in the three to $500 range, sometimes $150, which can be very steep for individuals. So um, one thing to do is, I mean, one thing that uh, judges and maybe algorithms in the future can take into account is um, using income as a means of determining what appropriate bail amounts should be. I think small bail, if, if $150 
can be enough for someone to stay in jail as opposed to live outside. There's a lot of scope for us to reduce bail amounts to uh, very small sums like $50 or $20, and that can go out with inflation. Um, this can be, I guess, implemented at the state level to make sure that it um, takes into account the price level of the entire region. So somewhere more expensive where the average income is higher, like San Francisco can have higher bail amounts than somewhere else, like, um, I don't know, in the Midwest, or in, um, in rural areas, for example. So these are all um, different solutions we can use to achieve the same um, outcome that we want bail to achieve, which is to encourage coming in without having the negative consequences of forcing someone to stay in jail and then give all these, I mean, result in all these other like knock-on effects. Yeah, so I think we have a a very wide variety of, you know, potential reforms and potential overhauls of the system, which, you know, you know, could produce the effects, you know, that we want. For, for me personally, I suppose a small reform um, that I think would, you know, do very well is, you know, exactly what Malik said. I think, you know, more training for judges um, uh, in terms of both. Uh, making sure that judges don't vary so much in, in the amounts of bail they give, while also making sure that judges aren't giving, you know, um, violent or uh, offenders or offenders of, you know, significant crimes, um, I suppose, an easy pass on bail. I, I think that's something that should be easy to implement and should also um, produce the effects that, that we want. Regarding overall change, I, I guess I'm sort of in the middle. I, I, I think some sort of algorithmic implementation would be good, but it, it concerns me if a you know computer model was, um, I guess, determining you know the lives of people completely. So perhaps um, an algorithm could assign the base bail amount or something along those lines, and a judge would be able to use their personal discretion to increase it or um, something along those lines. But but I think generally. Um, it's a very interesting, you know, discussion, especially given how complex the system is in the U.S. when we compare to to many other countries. Um, so with that, I think that's a, probably a good place for us to end off on. For our listeners, as you um, will have noticed, we have had a you know slight uh, hiatus, I suppose, in our um, uploading. But once we're all back at school. Um, it's going to be much more easy for us to maintain a consistent schedule, so please bear with us. Um, just a few notes before we go. As always, if you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, uh, please leave us a, a rating or review in the podcast store or feel free to tell a friend about us. Um, also, you can stay up to date by subscribing to our show on any podcast platform. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or you can also like our Facebook page at pseudointellectualspod as well. So thank you again so much for listening, and you will hear from us again soon.